Welcome back to the podcast. I promised you we'd get back to the Hundina Shoney, and we're going to do that right now. Now, why am I interweaving these two stories of New Netherland and the Iroquois Confederacy? Well, because they, they're kind of growing up together. They're developing together, and they're going to rely on one another in order to create all the history that we're going to get to eventually. A big part of American history that goes often unlearned in school. So if I recall correctly, we ended our last episode on the Iroquois Confederacy on the side of Lake George, I said. And I believe it's actually Lake Champlain, where you see Samuel D. Champlain, along with his Algonquin allies, coming down into Mohawk territory. And the Mohawks get their first glimpse, their first experience of firearms. And of course, as anyone would be, they're utterly baffled and scared by the sound and the effect of a gun having only stone and bone tools at this point. If you listen to the last episode, you'll, you'll hear that story from the point of view of a young Mohawk brave. So this would set the tone for what's going to happen in this episode, where we're entering a period before the Mohawk and the rest of the Iroquois Confederacy really have trade partners with any European powers. So they're going to be isolated. Things are going to get really scary. All the tribes around them are going to have access to interesting materials that they are not going to have access to. And again, the Iroquois are going to have to learn real quickly how to deal with firearms. Considering they have no access to firearms, no way to make them themselves, how do you conduct warfare or how do you defend yourself against firearms? The Iroquois are going to have to advance very quickly. And they're going to do so successfully, eventually, where a lot of groups fail miserably. So the Iroquois right now are basically in what the old world would call the Mesolithic Age. We're talking about a time where you're hunting and gathering and you're farming. Where you rely on both in order to feed and sustain your society. They're going to have to go from the Mesolithic Age to an age of firearms and colonialism and mercantilism. And we're talking about an age two steps removed from the Industrial Revolution, basically. So, like I said, many groups just don't make that reach. They get wiped out. They get assimilated. They get destroyed. The Iroquois are going to struggle, and they're going to use all the means they have possible to them to make it through this age. And this is going to be a very difficult period we're going to start right now. Initially, at the beginning of the 16th century, it appears that the Iroquois League expanded outward quickly and absorbed a lot of tribes or pushed a lot of tribes out of what is modern-day New York and the surrounding areas. However, before even the Europeans show up, there appears to have been a much larger political entity of Iroquois people to the west of the League. This is the Huron Confederacy. And they are estimated to have been larger in population than the Iroquois Confederacy. Not only that, but they had extensive trade relations with the Algonquin people all around them and other Iroquois tribes all around them, which the Iroquois Confederacy had almost none of. So let's say you were a French fur trader in the year uh, 1600, and somebody said to you, yeah, you know that huge alliance of Iroquois-speaking people? They might say to you, oh, you mean the Huron? The Huron Confederacy? Is that what you're talking about? So the Huron, by all accounts, seemed to have been, well, this is going to be the Confederacy that takes over. These are going to be the big guys in the future. If you were a betting man back then, you would bet on the Huron becoming the big dog in the area instead of the Iroquois League that would eventually take over. And there might be some little clues even in Iroquois history and oral tradition that the Huron were kind of a big deal. If you go back to our first or second episode on the origins of the Haudenosaunee and their stories of how, how they put their government together, Degondawida, this Merlin-like, John the Baptist-like religious figure who comes on the scene and spreads this idea of peace and union. It's really central to the Haudenosaunee thought and political theory. Degondawida was a Huron. 
So here at the base of the Iroquois Confederacy, we see some hint that maybe there was influence from the Confederacy right next door that was bigger and more powerful. But now I'm getting into prehistory and conspiracy theories, so I'm just going to leave that right there. That's for somebody more qualified to, to fish around with. Let's make the scenario worse now for the Iroquois League. Not only are you a league of people who are right next to a larger league of people who are very similar to your own, that are more powerful and more well-connected, have better alliances, better diplomacy. Now let's introduce the French to the scene. The French are going to start trading along the St. Lawrence, and they're going to strike up trade and military relationships with the Huron and all of their allies. And the French are going to be part of keeping that bond between all these groups together. They're creating a coalition, and that coalition is literally beginning to surround the Iroquois League. You may think a wise move would be to create some sort of alliance with the Huron or with the French and become part of this coalition. That seems to be a way to go. If you think of the Haudenosaunee as being in upstate New York today, just so you can get it in your mental map, the, the fur trade was really going into the center of North America and into the northern parts of North America, where the beaver had really thick coats, really good for hat making. The Haudenosaunee, being in modern-day upstate New York, were already kind of closed out by the Huron, who were to the west and north of them, and to the Algonquin to the north. So not only did the Iroquois not have very many furs in their area that Europeans would be interested in, but very quickly they're going to hunt the beaver straight out of New York State. Not to mention the beaver that they do have will be inferior quality to those found elsewhere. And again, they're being blocked by the Huron Confederacy and a bunch of other groups. They're nowhere near the good furs, and they're off the beaten track. They're not between the French and those furs. They're south of it. So they're, they're basically becoming irrelevant to the European trade in the area. They're falling behind, and they have no advantages. They have nothing to bring to the French or to the Huron and say, hey, we can be brothers. They have no material advantage at this time. This becomes important because we're seeing the first introduction of European materials to the interior of North America. Of course, as we talked about in other episodes, natives along the coast have been trading with Europeans since, honestly, a little before Columbus discovered, in quotes, America. Now, you might think, well, as soon as the Native American gets a hold of some European material, well, it's just game over for the Native American designs. Everything would just kind of go extinct. So you have a... A European axe, as soon as you give it to a Native American, the stone axe disappears. That's not quite what we find. We find that usually they get a hold of the metal of something and they reshape it into whatever design they are used to using. So, for example, they might get a metal axe, but then they would turn it into arrowheads because that's what they're used to using. And that design works really well for their lifestyle. It's been worked out over millennia. So those European materials, at least at first, were always refashioned into whatever shape Native Americans were used to using at that time. Even still, this puts the Haudenosaunee at a disadvantage because the materials are changing quickly. So without even counting Samuel D. Champlain and the guns and him popping up every now and then and killing a bunch of people, we can just assume, wow, um, some Algonquin tribes get a hold of metal and they shape them into arrowheads. And now all of a sudden our stone arrowheads are going against these metal arrowheads. Not only are they deadlier, they can pierce further, they can be reused better, and they're lighter. So now that wood armor that we talked about in a previous episode, where the Iroquois decked themselves out like Greek hoplites, basically, or hopelites, however you want to say it. Uh, think of uh, 300, and now imagine all that armor being made out of wood. That's how the Iroquois kind of looked. They covered themselves with, with wooden shields. 
Well, now if you have a metal arrowhead, that light wooden shield might not cut it anymore. And then, of course, with the introduction of firearms, it doesn't cut it at all. So the people of the Five Nations, they'd be at a huge disadvantage, and any hint of these European goods, they would have seemed magical to the native people. If you think about especially metal, the only metal that the Iroquois really had any experience with before this were little copper spirals, little bits of copper that were just found naturally in nature. Because copper will grow in veins and you can just find it, especially at this time before large mining operations took up all the ground supplies. You could find these little copper spirals and shape them into things and kind of work them into nice little bits of jewelry and whatnot. And they believed that these little copper spirals were the tail of a great serpent that encircled the world or was under the ground or in the world. The beliefs changed place to place. But metal already had this spiritual meaning to it. And then all of a sudden you're seeing like bits of iron that your enemies have. And you've, your mind must immediately go to some spirit or some great source of this strange material is working with my enemy. And so there's this spiritual and otherworldly component to all these new materials showing up. And the Iroquois really didn't have access to any of this stuff. Uh, the best the best guesses say any European materials obtained by the Haudenosaunee before the Dutch and the Mohawk really make a, a genuine connection. Most of it anyway, not all of it, but most of it must have come from warfare and raiding. That is their best estimate at this time. So I, I'm in the Oneida tribe. And I have no access to metal implements, but I know that fur is being traded to the north of me. And we're going to, we're going to see the French come in and out. We're going to see native groups carry away metal objects. We can intercept them on their way to the interior of the continent. And so it's believed that's how they got their European trade goods before 1614 on. So roughly from 1600 to 1614, we're, we're probably seeing a lot of raiding along the northern coastline between what's now Canada and New York State. As you can imagine, that supply in that condition would not be consistent, it's not going to be reliable, and it's going to create a lot of bad blood between your groups and the groups that are trading with the French. So you're creating a further, larger, bigger divide every time you go out to get some of this stuff. This is the real problem faced by the Haudenosaunee at this time. They can't serve as the middleman in this trade network. They can't serve as the source for beaver furs in this trade network. They have no role in this. And in any direction, they are going to be boxed out by other groups that are closer to Europeans or more strategically located. To the north, like I said, the Huron and a bunch of Algonquin tribes. Now, if you go to the east, there's another Algonquin people called the Mahegan, who lived in roughly what is now the Hudson River Valley and Albany County, up to Saratoga County, New York. The Mahegan will be between the dust traders on the Hudson and the Mohawk people. And then if you go to the south... There is a, a large gap of land before you get to uh, what at this time would be the settlement of Jamestown, which was founded in 1607, and this is the period we're talking about. There's no sense in going that far south because you have traditional enemies to the south, and you'll probably make more enemies on the way. It's, it's just very far away for the Haudenosaunee at this time. So let's peel these back a little. Let's start with the French. The French and the, the Iroquois League do not get along. Like, that would be an understatement of the century. They're going to be fighting each other for another 90 years, almost nonstop, on and off, and we're going to cover that quite a bit. So, the French are in no rush to create any sort of alliance with the Iroquois Confederacy, with the Haudenosaunee. They see the Iroquois of modern-day New York State as a problem, basically. They're going to be irritants to all their trading partners, and they could be seen as a potential source of authority other than the French. 
So they don't want that in the mix. They have no use for the Haudenosaunee. The South, like I said, there's just too much land and tribe tribal relations in between. There's no sense in trying to trade that way. Now, if you go east, things get a little more interesting. You have the settlement at Plymouth in 1620. But before that, and a lot closer, you have the Dutch on the Hudson River, starting to trade up and down Fort Nassau near modern-day Albany, New York. And so that seems the most feasible path to try to take. And there's a lot of evidence that the Mohawk were allowed to go in or near Mohegan territory and trade with the Dutch. So years later, the Mohawk would recall certain names from certain traders who were up and down the Hudson, traders who were long gone before the uh, Dutch West India Company moved in, traders that were long gone before the Mohegan were forced to move. So there is evidence that the Mohawk had contact with the Hudson River. They were allowed to trade with the Dutch, but again, they had to go through other tribal territories to get there. So that's not consistent, it's not reliable, and you can't count on that being there the next day. The Mohawk very wisely are going to deduce If we're going to be part of this new world where there's all these interesting and new and useful goods, we need to open up a path, and our best path to open up would be right to the Hudson River. So the most logical way to get into this new system and survive as a people would be to secure the trade to the Hudson River, which would involve basically removing the Mohegan or subduing them in some ways. Now... We're going to talk about warfare, and that sounds brutal to the modern, you know, imagination and taste. However, this seems to have been the best move for them at the time. Historians pretty much are on the same page as far as what would the Native Americans need to do in order to subsist at this time, in order to continue and to thrive. The historian George T. Hunt, he's quoted as saying, As new desires wakened and old skills vanished, the Indian who had fur or could get it survived. He who could not get it died or moved away. But whatever he did, life for him could never again be what it had been. So what George D. Hunt is saying right here is, you either had to get access to this trade network or you had to move away. You had to retreat further into the interior of the continent. And that will only delay your the point of contact with you and Europeans and how you relate to one another. So you can either charge forward and become part of it, or you can retreat and just put off when first contact is going to happen. So we know that the Mohawk had some contact with the Dutch early on. We're talking about the 1610s, not too long after Henry Hudson sailed up the Hudson River. We know that there's an early Dutch trader named Kleinchen, I believe that's how you pronounce it, who helped develop an early map of New Netherland. And he is recorded as having gone into Mohawk country, into the Five Nations territory. Although we don't have an account from that. We just see it on a map. So we have a visual representation, but we have no documentation as to what he actually experienced other than the physical features on that map. And then in Mohawk oral tradition, there is an account of a treaty made, some sort of commercial treaty made, between the Iroquois, specifically the Mohawk, and the Dutch around the year 1619. But we have no other documentation of this. And again, the Mohegan were still in the middle of that. So the real nature of that treaty is up in the air. Who knows? It might not even exist. People have argued one way or the other. And while all this is going on, Samuel D. Champlain and his companions were allying with these Algonquin and these Huron, and occasionally they'd pop their head into the Five Nations territory and just wreak havoc. Because again, the people there were not used to firearms. We see the attack on Lake Champlain, and there's a couple other little attacks, and each time the people just run away in many cases because firearms are such a new and scary thing, of course you would run away. I know what a firearm is, but if somebody just pulled one out around me, I'd probably run away too. But then there comes a time where something happens where Samuel D. Champlain shows up, 
couple of his guys, couple guns, all sorts of native allies. And for once, the Iroquois don't wince away. They're starting to get used to the sound of gunfire. They're starting to understand how guns work and how you could best counter gunfire. How you could arrange yourself so you're not such a conspicuous target. And that turning point comes around the year 1615. So again, in 1609, the Mohawks are running away from gunfire. They've never seen it before. But by 1615, we're starting to see a little bit of resolve. And this is going to be where everything starts to pivot. And the Iroquois realize, hey, we can strike out on our own here. We can make our own futures out of this. So now I'm going to read an account from Samuel D. Champlain of that turning point as he witnessed it. Now, just to note here, the French were pawns in the games and the alliances of the Native Americans. We often think of Europeans coming over and taking advantage of Native Americans. But early on, especially in the 17th century, the small groups of Europeans were being used as pawns by Native groups to become more powerful against their enemies. So Samuel D. Champlain, he's being led around by their allies, and he's being pushed in front of the Iroquois at various points. But he himself doesn't have as much of an idea of what's going on in this part of North America so much as his allies do. And he only knows what they're sharing with him. There's some debate of where exactly this Iroquois castle was that Samuel D. Champlain and his Algonquin allies are going to attack, his Huron allies also. But it seems to be somewhere in the interior of the Five Nations. It's not on the ends. It's not on the ends of the Longhouse. It's not a Mohawk village. It's not a Seneca village. It's going to be in the heartland, which makes it even scarier. All right, here we go. At three o'clock in the afternoon, we arrived before the fort of the Huron and the Algonquin's enemies, where the savages made some skirmishes with each other, although our design was not to disclose ourselves until the next day, which, however, the impatience of our savages would not permit, both on account of their desire to see fire opened upon their enemies, and also that they might rescue some of their own men, who had become too closely engaged and were hotly pressed. Then I approached the enemy, and although I had only a few men, Yet we showed them what they had never seen nor heard before. For as soon as they saw us and heard the musket shots and the balls whizzing in their ears, they withdrew speedily to their fort, carrying the dead and wounded. We also withdrew to our main body, with five or six wounded, one of whom died. This done, we withdrew to the distance of a cannon range, out of sight of the enemy, but contrary to my advice and to what they had promised me, this moved me to address them in very rough and angry words, in order to incite them to do their duty, foreseeing that if everything should go according to their whim and the guidance of their counsel, their utter ruin would be the result. Nevertheless, I did not fail to send to them and propose means which they should use in order to get possession of their enemies. These were to make certain kinds of wood and put together an elevated platform or tower, which would be higher than the walls of the Iroquois. Upon this were to be placed four or five muskets, who should keep up constant fire over the walls, and by this means dislodge the enemy who might attack us. This position they thought good and very reasonable, and immediately proceeded to carry them out as I directed. The next day we approached to attack the village, our cavalier being armed with two hundred of the strongest men, who put it down before the village wall, at a pike's length off. I ordered three muskets to mount upon it, who were well protected from the arrows and stones that could be shot or hurled at them. Meanwhile, the enemy did not fail to send a large number of arrows, which did not miss in a great many stones, 
which they hurled from their palisades. Nevertheless, a hot fire of muskets forced them to dislodge and abandon their galleries. In consequence of the tower which uncovered them, them not wanting to venture to show themselves, but fighting under shelter. Now when the tower was carried forward, instead of bringing up the large wooden shields as I had ordered, they abandoned them and began to scream at their enemies, shooting arrows into the fort, which in my opinion did little harm to the enemy. But we must excuse them, for they are not warriors, and besides, they have no discipline, nor correction, and they will do only what they please. Accordingly, one of them set fire inconsiderately to the wood placed against the fort of the enemy, quite the wrong way, and in the face of the wind, so that it produced no effect. The fire being out, the greater part of the savages began to carry wood against the palisades, but in so small a quantity that the fire could have no great effect. There also arose such disorder among them that one could not understand one another, which greatly troubled me. In vain I did shout in their ears to, to demonstrate in my utmost with them as to the danger to which they were exposing themselves by their bad behavior, but on account of the great noise they made, they heard nothing. Seeing that the shouting would only burst my head, and that the demonstrations were useless for putting a stop to the disorder, I did nothing more, but determined together with my men to do what we could, and fire upon such as we could see. We were engaged in this combat for about three hours, in which two of our chiefs and leading warriors were wounded, namely one called Akatigam, and another Arani, together with some fifteen common warriors. The others, seeing their men and some of their chiefs wounded, now began to talk of a retreat without further fighting. In expectation of the 500 men whose arrival could not be much more delayed, thus they retreated a disorderly rabble. Moreover, the chiefs have in fact no absolute control over their men, who are governed by their own will and follow their own fancy, which is the cause of the disorder and the ruin of all their undertakings. For having determined upon anything with their leaders, it needs only the whim of a villain or nothing at all to lead them to break it off and form a new plan. Thus, there is no concert of action among them, as can be seen by this expedition. If you go by Champlain's tone, it's hard to tell what exactly happened and who exactly is to blame. But although he has quite boisterous vocabulary and the way he's talking is that of an authority on what happened and a power in the area, it's very clear that Champlain and his allies lost, and they lost completely. It's clear now that from 1609, when he was on Lake Champlain attacking the Mohawk, to 1615, when he's in the heart of Iroquois territory, that the Iroquois League became accustomed to firearms. Although Champlain does say we set off some firearms and people were scared, it seems like they rallied. They were in a village. They weren't going to abandon their own village. And by the end of it, they got over that fear of firearms. The French were not indestructible, as they had been. Scary and foreign and perhaps spiritual and from another world, who knows. The French are now known and defeatable. And now the Iroquois know that, and they know what firearms are. So that's going to take us to the eastern side of the Iroquois world, to the world of the Mohawk. Back to the Mohegan and the Mohawk and the dispute between them. In our last New Netherland episode, I ended on this battle that happened in modern-day Albany, really a skirmish, just a couple of guys. But the Mohegan came to the Dutch, and they said, Listen, we have this enemy. They're close by. They're coming in small raiding groups to attack us. Help us out with your firearms. The Dutch at the fort at Fort Orange said, Yes, sure. We'd be glad to help. You're our main trading partner. Why not? 
they go out there with their guns, very confident. The Mohegan think, well, once they see these guns, once they hear them go off, it's over. And they get ambushed by the Mohawk. And the Mohawk win, and they kill a couple of them. The best surviving account of this attack comes from Wassenaar's History, written just a couple years after this period. Originally in Dutch, here's a translation. 1626. It happened this year that the Mohegan were going to go to war with the Mohawk. They requested the assistance of the commander of Fort Orange and six others. Commander Crickenbeak went up with them a league from the fort where they met the Mohawk, who fell so boldly upon them with a discharge of arrows that they were forced to flee, and many were killed, among whom were the commander and three of his men. Among the latter was Timon Bowens, whom they devoured after having well roasted him. The rest they burnt. The commander was buried with two others by his side, three escaped, two Portuguese and a Hollander from Horn. One of the Portuguese was wounded by an arrow in the back while swimming. The Indians carried a leg and an arm home to be divided among their families as a sign that they had conquered their enemies. A quick and decisive win for the Mohawk. Now we see things have changed quite, quite a bit, quite quickly. The Mohawk have adapted. Rather than to be af afraid of firearms and fighting with wooden armor, palisaded like Greek hoplites behind homemade walls made on the spot, like we saw off the coast of Lake Champlain, they have now gone to raiding and to ambushing. These fast, quick attacks. So quick that these inaccurate muskets aren't going to hit one or two people. You're moving too fast. There's not a big blob, a big group of people standing still to hit. You're going in, you're hitting them hard, and you're getting out of there super quick. The Mohawk have learned this, and now the tables are going to start to turn for everyone. Now, inside of this story, we see references to cannibalism and to trading body parts of slain victims. This was a practice practiced among Native Americans at the time, many different groups. It was pretty common, and it's something you just don't see in history textbooks because they're meant for children. But the, the brutal reality is, yes, there was cannibalism. And there were the, the trading of body parts as trophies or evidence of victories. Let us be reminded this was 400 years ago. And this kind of stuff was happening everywhere in the world. You can't just single out one group for any reason. It was a brutal time everywhere. This one account is one of only a few references to this Mohawk-Mohegan War, which took place roughly over a four-year period. We know from that length of time and from some other references, that it was not so one-sided. The Mohawk didn't have an easy way of getting rid of the Mohegan, and there was some back and forth. A couple years later, there's going to be a young Dutch explorer. Explorer, well, he's a barber surgeon, but he's going to be on an expedition. And he writes down an account, and he describes seeing an abandoned Mohawk village that would have been abandoned right around the time of this Mohawk attack in Albany. So it's not so one-sided. The Mohegan are striking back. They're making gains. The Mohawk are making their own gains. It's going to be brutal. And I've seen some references that indicate that the Mohawk were spurred to attack the Mohegan because the French were pushing them to do so. Although I haven't been able to really find the details on how that came about. But the idea being that the French wanted the Dutch out of the Hudson River Valley. So push the Mohawk to attack the Mohegan and weaken the Dutch position. But again, the evidence for that... I don't know. At the end of this long struggle for which we have almost no information, the Mohegan are expelled from basically what is now the capital district of New York State, Albany. The Albany's connected Detroit area up into the Saratoga area, pushed out completely, pushed onto the eastern side of the Hudson River and into this world of New England Algonquin peoples.
They aren't gone yet. They're not destroyed. They still exist. But there's nothing between the Dutch now and the Mohawk, part of the Iroquois Confederacy. The Mohegan are now pushed to the east, and they're not going to be inside of this network for furs anymore. Again, there's no reason to go through them anymore. They're further off to the east. All the good furs are deep into the west. So the the end result of this war is that the Mohawk established themselves as the go-between, and the Mohegan are completely disenfranchised. It is at this point that the Mohawk established for the Iroquois League a official treaty with the Dutch, as far as we can tell. So there's been a debate where the first treaty between the Dutch and the Iroquois began, or when was it? When did it happen? Some people will bring up a very early date that seems unlikely, and then some people bring up some later dates. Again, it seems like the Mohawk actually knew some of those early traders who disappeared from the scene early on, and yet there are some conflicts going on well into the 1620s that would indicate that there's probably no real treaty there. Uh, one point to make is that before the Dutch West India Company moves in, there's really no official who could make a treaty with any Native American nation on behalf of the nation of the Netherlands. There's no one who would have that power, that, that distinction. For the people out there who say there was a 1619 treaty, again, I would say, I don't know if there was anyone who on the Dutch side who could make that treaty, who would have the power to do so. Secondly, there's a lot of stuff going on after the New Netherland Company falls apart, right? And then in the late 1610s and the 1620s, you have all these random individual Dutch traders working from their own devices and representing no one but themselves and their uh, stockholders or their investors. If you make a treaty with one of these random traders, it doesn't apply to all of the Netherlands. Of course, the Native Americans wouldn't know these distinctions yet. So in 1622, after the apparent 1619 treaty was made, there's a Dutch trader named Hans Haunten, and he holds a Mohawk chief captive for a ransom. He gets the ransom, and then he castrates, which means to cut off the genitals of, and then he kills the guy anyway. So we see these reports in the early 1620s of just horrific things being done by individuals. There's no sign that there's any sort of treaty in place, especially with the Mohegan still in there. So we know, though, after the Mohegan are removed, the Mohawk are able to establish the first official treaty with the Dutch traders. If you read the textbooks or if you look online, it'll say the Dutch established a treaty with the Mohawk after this point. No. Based on this story you've just heard in this tale and the history, it's very clear that the Mohawk did the footwork. They're the ones who established the treaty with the Dutch. So again, a lot of history will present it as the Europeans are the ones doing things and the Native Americans are the ones being acted upon. Native Americans are people too. They have thoughts and desires and they're out there doing things. From my point of view, the Mohawks established this treaty with the Dutch on behalf of the five nations. So if you listen to the last episode on New Netherland, you know that before this point, New Netherland is in the dumps. They're not doing very well. They're falling apart very quickly because they have a terrible director. And then the Mohawk and all of the five nations, they too were being boxed out by everybody else. But here we are at this point. These two groups meet. They establish a treaty. They do their trading at Fort Orange, modern-day Albany, New York. And all of a sudden, things are starting to turn around quickly. The five nations, for the first time ever, are going to have access to goods from the old world. They're going to come from the Dutch. Meanwhile, the French, up in what is now Canada, now they're going to be concerned. Not only are the Dutch not being forced out, they're not being dislodged from the Hudson River Valley, they've established and made allies. Now, New Netherland is going to be stabilized. The Five Nations are going to have an inlet and an outlet for trade. And now there's going to be more pressure on the French. Because the French, 
with their allies, the Huron and the Algonquin allies, are going to be in the way of access to furs. There are furs in New York State. There are beaver furs, especially. That's what the Dutch want. But the best furs come from further up north. They come from further in the interior. And beavers, like we've talked about before, they don't pro procreate like rabbits. There's, not, there's just not a lot of them around. So the Mohawk and all the other Iroquois people being very good hunters can very quickly exterminate all the beaver from New York State. Which is going to cause them to need a new source. So now the Five Nations, which was on the retreat, is now going to be looking west and looking north and looking for new opportunities. The Haudenosaunee have just become a force to be reckoned with. This has been the Other States of America History Podcast. I'm Eric Giannis. Thank you for listening.